We're once again in Romans 6 this morning. So we're looking at Romans 6, verses 15 to 23. And so, um, you know, if you have a Bible, it's going to be very helpful or a device to open up to Romans 6 because uh, it's, it's a great passage. There's a lot in it, and it's going to be great to have it open um, in front of you. Now, this, this series, um, if you remember, it's been a while since we've been in Romans 6, but we'll be in it more times than not until we get finished with this series. It's called Life in the Spirit. And the, the title comes from the last part of Romans 6, 4 that says, so that we too may walk in newness of life. See, the first five chapters of the book of Romans are all about what God has done for us in the gospel. This gospel of God's grace and how we, we are saved by grace. That the Romans 5 ends with, with saying those beautiful words about amazing grace. That where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Where, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul begins to turn the corner a bit. And now he's connecting what God has done for us in the gospel with what God will do in us through the gospel. And how there's real power to change us, to transform us from the inside out so that we can actually walk in newness of life. And I've heard from, from many of you over the last month that this, that you agree with me, this is very good news. That this is appealing to us, the idea of walking in newness of life. Of actually being the, the women, the, the men, the spouses, the parents, the the children that God's calling us to be that we want to be. That it's desirable for us to think about the fruit of the Spirit being present in our lives in an increasing way. Being new. Not being the same old us any longer, but being new. You see, Paul spends the first half of Romans 6... Saying that whenever we come to Jesus by faith, we are united to him in both his death and his resurrection. And there's some very heavy-duty theology in that first half of Romans 6. But what it says is that our, our share in Jesus' death means that our old self, our old life, died with Jesus 2,000 years ago and was buried. It's gone. And now we've been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. One way to think about it is it's as if the old us, the old life, the old self was volume one. And that's now been closed to never be opened ever again. And that we're now living in volume two. And so what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans six over and over and over again is be who you are now. If you're in Christ, united with him in his death and his resurrection, union with Christ. Now be who you are. That old you, that's not who you are anymore. Be who you are. Now that's easier said than done. But it's possible. And over the last month, several of you have come to me and you've expressed to me uh, excitement about what you've learned so far in Romans 5 and Romans 6. And, and what I've heard from multiple people is this, that I, <laughs> Richard, thank you. This is incredible. I now have, I now have some language. I now have some language to use whenever I find myself 
staring temptation right in the face. And now able to say, that's not who I am. I don't have to do that. I don't have to click that or think that or say that or drink that or eat that or do that. That's not who I am anymore. That sin no longer rules and reigns over me. I'm a child of God adopted into his family. And just as sin has no, no longer any claim, any authority over Jesus at all, it has no claim, no authority over me. And here in the last half of Romans 6, the Apostle Paul, he just doubles down on this. And he gives us even more ammunition to use in our fight and our struggle against sin. And we all need that. We all need that. So I'm going to read Romans 6, starting in verse 15. And uh, if you're using the Black Bible, under the chair near you will be on page 943. Read verses 15 to 23. And now, for the last couple of weeks, after the scripture text has been read, some of you have noticed this, that the preacher has said, this is the word of the Lord. And now... A few of you have then responded by saying, thanks be to God. That's right and appropriate. In fact, it would be beautiful. It would be beautiful if after I read this text and I say, the word of the Lord, that you all respond in unison, thanks be to God. Romans 6, starting in verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. Now, this, this is a very serious passage. Okay, I wish I had some jokes for you this morning, but I don't have any. Okay, but this, but, but I promise you this, okay, you want to guarantee, money back guarantee here. If you listen and you apply this to your life, it'll make a difference. I promise you that. I promise you that. We're going to look at this passage with three headings. This passage is really all about uh, spiritual slavery. And even right there, we don't like the word slavery. We hate to think about that word, and there's a great reason why we hate to think about it. But Paul is using it in part because sin is that ugly, but he's speaking about spiritual slavery. 
And and we're going to look at this passage with three headings. First, the reality of spiritual slavery, the analogy of spiritual slavery, and the paradox of spiritual slavery. So the reality, the analogy, and the paradox. So first, the reality. Look at verse 15. Paul asks, Why then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now that's very similar to Romans 6 verse 1. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Because we are under grace. If we're in Christ, we're under grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That, that the good news of the gospel says that no matter how great our sin is, that God's grace throws down the trump card over and over and over again. That you look, Think about it in terms of a scale. No matter how great our sin is, God's grace is greater still. It's always that way. And so Paul asks the question that many people ask. Well, since we're recipients of God's grace through faith in Jesus, does that mean we get to do whatever we want? Does that mean we get to do whatever we choose? Can, can we pick and choose? We were talking about this following form about the fifth commandment. Can we pick and choose which of the ten commandments that we take seriously? You know, are we free to do whatever we want because we are under grace? And this is the kinds of questions that we ask whenever God's amazing grace found in the gospel is preached in all of its fullness. You really can't help but ask in response to it. That sounds so amazing. Does that mean, I mean, am I really that free? Can I do whatever I want? Now, Paul gives a very quick and clear answer at the end of verse 15. By no means. Now, in the Greek text, this is the strongest negative Paul can use. It's literally, God forbid, may it never be, certainly not, of course not. This is inconceivable. This is unthinkable. Don't ever ask ever again. I mean, that's basically what Paul's saying here. Okay, but, but Richard, we're under grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Yes, we are. We're under grace. Now, here's a question to think about. You're under grace. So what now is the Christian's motivation and understanding of obligation and obedience in daily life? In other words, why should you continue? I want you to really think about this. What's your answer to this question? Why, why should you continue or start to get up early in the morning to read your Bible and pray? I mean, why, why should you make the decision to not sleep in, not go to brunch, and be here in this room this morning? If you're a follower of Christ, not under law but under grace, why should you never, ever look at pornography ever again? I mean, why, why, why should you deliberately and sacrificially uh, decide and plan intentionally that you're going to give away at least 10% of your income. You know, teenagers and younger children, you know, why should you honor your father and your mother? I mean, why, why should you do that? What's your obligation? What's your motivation? And what the Apostle Paul says in the second half of Romans 6 may surprise you. <laughs> He says it's because of the reality of spiritual slavery. That's why. See, it's because being saved by grace doesn't mean that we're free from having a master. What Paul says very clearly here is that everyone has a master. He says everyone has a master. Look at verse 16. 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who of you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Timothy Keller summarizes it pretty well. He says that you can be either a slave to sin or a servant of God, but you cannot be neither, and you cannot be both. That Paul's going to stress uh, throughout this passage that there are ultimately only two categories of master. There's God and there's sin. But make no mistake that we all are serving one or the other. And if you look at the passage as a whole, in verse 16, we see that we can be slaves of sin or slaves of obedience. Verses 17 and 18, slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. In verses 20 and 22, slaves of sin or slaves of God. And so Paul's point here is that if you're a follower of Jesus, then if you're living out who you really are, you're no longer a slave of sin, but you're a slave of obedience, of righteousness, of God. But don't miss the point. The Paul says that no one is absolutely free and autonomous. That no person is free to do everything she or he may want to do. That God and God alone is totally free. But all the rest of us, we're limited to or enslaved by someone or something. So if you want to make a really densely theological passage like Romans 6 come alive, you've got to connect this to your life. And so here's how you do it. Who or what are you serving? Because you are serving someone or something. See, we all are. We're all offering ourselves every day to someone or something, and we are controlled by that to which we offer ourselves. You see, whether you consider yourself religious or not, we all worship someone or something in some way. Everyone's offering themselves to someone or living for something. Everyone's offering themselves up on the, as a sacrifice on some altar. We are all serving some cause, some bottom line, and that something becomes our functional master or God, and we become its slaves. So... Who or what are we serving? Because it's a reality that we're all serving someone or something. Now, the second heading is the analogy. Why does Paul use this analogy of slavery? I mean, why why this analogy? I mean, the Bible uses so many other analogies. And we don't often use this analogy of slavery. Um... Often, and that's okay because it's a good idea to be as balanced as the Bible is balanced. And the Bible uses lots of analogies to describe God's relationship to his people. There's the analogy of a shepherd and a sheep, and a bridegroom with his bride, and a father with his child. But what Paul is using here is a master and a slave. Now, why? Why is he doing that? Well, look at verse 19. Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul is using this because the Roman Christians there receiving this letter, they understood slavery. It said that in the first century, uh, the population of Rome was about one-third slaves. About one-third. And many of them had voluntarily entered into slavery because they found themselves so far in debt they couldn't see a way out. So they entered into slavery voluntarily to pay off the debt. There there were so many slaves that someone had the bright idea, you know what, hey, let's, let's make all the slaves wear a distinctive uniform. And then someone had the brighter idea to say, that's silly because then they'll see how many of them they are and then they just may take over. So we're not doing that. But the point is that 
this first, this church that Paul is writing this letter to originally, that just about everyone in that church fit into one, one of these categories. They were a slave, they had been a slave, or they had slaves. And so Paul uses this analogy because they all understood it. And it's powerful. But it's an analogy. And with an analogy, we're supposed to compare and contrast things. Things are similar, but not exactly alike. And so Paul wants us to do that. And what he's going to do in the next few verses, he's going to compare and contrast slavery to sin with slavery to God. And what he does in verses 17 and 18 is he compares um, the, uh, the origins of these two options for slavery. And then in verse 19, he compares the path of slavery. He compares and contrasts the two different paths of slavery. So let's first look at verses 17 18. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So Paul says there are two options. Living as a slave to sin or living as a slave to righteousness, to obedience, to to God. And he says in verse 17, you who were once slaves of sin. And he uses that to describe everyone. Because slaves of sin is exactly what all humans are by nature and by birth. and And it's who followers of Jesus were before God graciously saved us. But if you look in verse 17, Paul begins by thanking God. Why? Why does he say thanks be to God? Because God's the one who does the saving. Because anyone who is saved, anyone who is in Christ, they're in Christ by God's grace, not by works. They're saved by grace alone. And then Paul fleshes this out more. Well, what does this really look like? How does this really happen? How are we saved? Well, in verse 17, we're saved by God's grace from slavery to sin. When the standard of teaching came. And I think the standard of teaching is what we commonly call today the gospel. The gospel, the good news that God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect sinless life. The life that we have all failed to live. And that God sent Jesus, his son, to go to the cross and to die a sacrificial atoning death. To shed his blood, to pay our sin penalty in full and completely. And that Jesus, God's son, rose from the grave. On that first Easter morning to prove that this is all true. That he is the Savior, the Son of God. He has defeated death, Satan, sin once for all. And Paul says that this standard of teaching came to us. We became obedient from the heart. It went down into our hearts. See, whenever a person becomes a Christian, it's not that they simply know the stories about Jesus. Although knowing the stories are incredible. You know, and Cliff and Phoenix should teach little Madeline the stories of Jesus. We should all learn the stories of Jesus. But knowing the stories in our minds, that's not enough. It has to get down into our our hearts. You see, we're saved by grace from slavery to sin when the message of the gospel sinks deep into our hearts. And we we begin to obey wholeheartedly. See, whenever it sinks into our hearts, it begins to change us. Begins to change us. Look at verse 18. And having been set free from sin, we have been changed. We have become slaves of righteousness. And so Paul contrasts and compares the origins here of these two forms of slavery. That slavery to sin begins at our birth. However, slavery to God begins at our new birth. 
when God's grace enters our lives and enables us to believe the gospel of Jesus from the heart. Now, that's, that's theology. And for some of you, you love that. For others of you, you're thinking, okay, what are we doing here? Now we're about to move into something that's very real. Very, very practical. Something I know we all understand. Because I understand it. I know you understand it. But it gets pretty serious pretty quickly. Paul compares and contrasts the two different paths. And they're not the same. See, look, look at verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Do you see what Paul's saying? He says we're all going down a path. We're all going down a path. We all have a master. And the master is either sin or the master is God. And whoever our master is, he is taking us somewhere. He's taking us somewhere. There's development. We're on a journey. We're going deeper one way or the other. And he says for one of the paths, he says lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. You understand what that means? When sin is your slave master, sin's never content to draw you to himself once. He wants you to come back again and again. See, someone once said that sin is always a downhill path. It's always a downhill path. You see, there's no such thing as dabbling in sin. This is why Paul is using the analogy of slavery because we might plan on dabbling, but sin has other plans. You see, we, we think we're in control, but whenever you dabble in sin, hear me on this, okay? Because I know this is true for my own life. I know it's true for your life as well because you can't be that different from me. Whenever you dabble in sin, you always are getting deeper than what you think you are. Inevitably, one sin leads to another. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Lawlessness insists on multiplying itself. That's what it does. So think about this. Students, I mean, the first time you're tempted to cheat on a test, copy someone's assignment, plagiarize, whatever it may be. The first time you're tempted, the first time you're tempted might be a bit of a struggle. Okay, I shouldn't, do, I shouldn't do this. What if I get caught? Maybe you think this is wrong and sin, but it's a struggle at first. But then if you're able to talk yourself into doing it, you know what? I won't get caught. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. I can promise you, you know what happens next time? You struggle, the struggle becomes a little bit easier. It becomes so much easier just to give in and just do it again. It becomes so much easier to no longer, not only cheat in a class you're struggling in, but to cheat in a class who you're doing really well in. Just because it's easier. That lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Or maybe a more mature um, example. Let's suppose that, you know, you go on a business trip and you've got an expense report to turn in. And, and you know that if, if you lie just a little bit, you tweak it just a little bit, you can squeeze in that present for your spouse or for your child. 
You know you shouldn't do it. You might get caught. If you get caught, you'll get fired. But, but you probably won't get caught. You've heard other people are doing this or you're sure they're doing it. And so you wrestle with it. You struggle with it. You, you do it. You do it. And the more you do it, the more and more money you'll make room for in the expense report. And the easier it will become to do it. And eventually you'll even be saying, you know what? I'm so underpaid and this company wastes so much money that this is righteous for me to do this. I mean, they should have given me this already. See, in the beginning you fight it, but sin's always a downhill path. It always becomes easier that lawlessness always multiplies itself. That we say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to just click that link. And I'll just, I'll just watch just for a minute. I'll just watch just for a minute. And then a minute becomes minutes. And minutes become hours. And there are times when hours become a whole night. You see, as soon as sin gets one rope around you, guess what he does? He throws another one. And another one. And another one until you are fully entangled. And you can take this to the bank. You can't get out of sin as easily as you thought or as easily as you got into it. And then there's the other path. Paul says in verse 19, If you're in Christ, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. You see, the more you obey God, the more you grow in mature spiritually. The more you live as a slave to righteousness in response to God's grace, the more you want to obey God out of gratitude from the heart. And this is so hard to believe. This is so hard to believe because of the third heading, the the paradox. See, here's the paradox of this whole thing. Freedom from God is true slavery. Slavery to God is true freedom. So let me say that again. Freedom from God is true slavery. Slavery to God is true freedom. And it's so hard to believe that. But it's absolutely true. And the Apostle Paul is going to spend the next few verses really helping us think through this. He's going to ask us to ask ourselves some real honest questions that we know the answers to. See, look at verse 20. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I think Paul has acknowledged what we all know to be true about sin, and that is sin always presents itself as the very essence of freedom. I get to do what I want to do. No one's going to be the boss of me. You see, sin tells us that obedience to God is living in a moral straitjacket. See, sin would have us to believe that God always says no, 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 no. That God's the great cosmic killjoy. No, no, no. You can't do that. You cannot do this. And sin always promises us freedom, happiness, excitement, and life. However, true freedom is not found in the word freedom. It's found in the reality of our experience. You understand what I mean? Just because a person says, I'm free, it doesn't mean they're really free. I mean, do you feel free? Do you feel free? What does freedom feel like? I'll tell you what freedom doesn't feel like. Freedom doesn't feel like shame. 
Freedom does not feel like hiding. It doesn't feel like guilt. Freedom doesn't feel like secrets. That's not what freedom feels like. Paul asked the question in verse 21. You were free in regard to righteousness, but verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Right? Sin promises freedom, happiness, excitement, and life. And so Paul asks us to evaluate, okay, what's the fruit? What's been the payoff? Sin makes these big promises. But what's the payoff? And he gives us a hint. The things we're now ashamed of. Then he goes further in the last part of verse 21. Here's the fruit. And Paul knows that we all know this. For the end of those things is death. Now, ultimately, eternally, sin brings spiritual death, judgment, condemnation, separation from God for all eternity. But notice that Paul is calling Christians to look back on their lives. Okay, people who are not going to be separated from God for all eternity, he calls them to look back on their lives at the fruit of their sin. And he says, don't you see that leads to death? And so I think that the death that Paul is talking about here specifically, although eternal death and separation from God in hell, that's certainly there for those who, who do not trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. But I think what Paul's asking us to think about is death, the death we experience in this life whenever we sin. Death in terms of brokenness and shame. Now, make no mistake. Sin is often fun and enjoyable in the moment. It's often exciting, invigorating. It even feels liberating for a short amount of time. But in the long run, it leads to death. Displayed in brokenness, shame, and destruction. I mean, we know this. We know this. And just so that, that to prove I'm not picking on anyone, let's, let's think through this using the, the famous seven deadly sins, okay? So I can't be picking on any one of you or me. Think about pride. Think about pride. In the long run, what does pride do? It destroys relationships. It turns people, it turns us into people who look on others as possessions to be amassed, exploited, and controlled. What about lust? I mean, giving in to lust, that feels so exhilarating. In the long run, what does it do? Destroys one's personality. It weakens loyalty, undercuts trust, destroys integrity. Gluttony makes us feel good, soothes some of that pain, but in the long run, destroys the body. In whatever form it appears, whether it's overindulgence in food, drink, or drugs. What about anger? Just telling it like it is. That feels good for a second. Until we look around at the, the carnage we've left in our, in our wake. How it destroys others, whether by violence or by our words. Sloth, that feels liberating. But ultimately will destroy opportunities and ambitions. You know, envy and greed. It feels like a little secret that we have just in our minds, in our hearts. As we judge others and we, we have these fantasies, but ultimately it destroys contentment, peace, and happiness. You see, that's what sin does. It destroys and it leads to death, which is displayed in our lives in brokenness and shame. And hear me on this. We cannot, don't think you can, you cannot quarantine off 
Okay, you cannot quarantine off sin into a secret part of your life and not have it infect and spill over into all the other areas. Don't you think that you can? It's going to impact your marriage. It's going to impact your children. It's going to impact your health. It's going to impact your, your career. You, you, can't, you can't section it off. And for the follower of Jesus, this life, okay, this old life is a life that died with Christ. It was buried. It's now gone. So be who you are. Be who you are. You know, our culture places incredible value on being true to yourself. Being true to yourself. Well, for the follower of Jesus, that's what Paul says too. Be true to yourself. Quit, quit being who you're not. Be the real you. That God wants you to be true to yourself. God wants you to be the real you. He wants you to be who he has made you to be by his grace. And that's what Paul says in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. You see, friends, the paradox is that if you live as a slave to God, then you find true freedom. Then you find true freedom. And Paul uses the word fruit here again. Evaluate the fruit. Evaluate the fruit. And whenever Paul speaks about fruit, I can't help but think about the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says, if you give yourself as a slave to righteousness and obedience and to God, this is the fruit you see in your life. It leads to life. But who doesn't want those things? Who doesn't want those things to be growing in increasing measure all the time? See, friends, do you see what Paul's saying to you? He's saying it's your choice. What, what do you want? Do you want sin, shame, brokenness, and death? Or do you want God, fruit, holiness, and life? What, what do you want? What do you want? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to serve? Who are we going to serve? Who are we going to follow? You may be thinking, Richard, I, of course, I want that. Okay, I don't want the other. But I keep trying and I keep failing. And I know that you do. I do too. I do too. The Apostle Paul did too. That's why Romans 7 is coming up next. And he's very honest about the struggle with this. See, he's not talking about perfection. He's talking about the trajectory of one's life. He's talking about struggling and fighting well against sin. He's talking about Expending effort to, to be who you are, who God has made you to be by his grace. Grace. Hmm. Let's end with some grace. That's how Paul ends. Charles Spurgeon calls Romans 6.23 the golden sentence. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the wages of sin is death. And what Paul tells us is that sin is a master who always pays. Always pays on time and in full with death and brokenness. But, and there's an important but, 
Paul has one final contrast for us. And since Paul has been contrasting and comparing slavery to sin with slavery to righteousness, one might expect Paul to say, for the wages of sin is death, but the wages of righteousness is eternal life. But is that what Paul says? Is that what he says? Does he say the wages of sin is death, but the wages of righteousness is life? Okay, that's not what he says. The wages of sin is death, and you get exactly what you deserve. But the get, God gives a free gift of grace, the free gift of life through faith in Jesus. And all who come to Jesus by faith get what you do not and you cannot deserve. We get grace, forgiveness, and freedom. See, this is the great paradox. So Jesus says in, in John 8, verse 36, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so so freedom is not found in the word freedom. It's not found in the word freedom. So just because you say that you're free doesn't mean you're free. You know, I said earlier that I know what freedom doesn't feel like. Freedom doesn't feel like shame or guilt or hiding or secrets. You know what freedom looks like? Freedom looks like joy. It really does. It looks like joy and honesty. That you're free to thrive and flourish as the image bearer that God created you to be. So what are we to do with Romans 6? We need to start speaking to ourselves these things. Taking ourselves by the hand. Preaching this truth to ourselves. So let me end with a quote from John Stott, and he puts it very practically. He says, so in practice, we should constantly be reminding ourselves who we are. We need to learn to talk to ourselves and ask ourselves questions. Don't you know? Don't you know the meaning of your conversion and baptism? Don't you know that you've been united to Christ in his death and resurrection? Don't you know that you've been enslaved to God and have committed yourself to his obedience? Don't you know these things? Don't you know who you are? We must go on pressing ourselves with such questions until we reply to ourselves, Yes, I do know who I am, a new person in Christ, and by the grace of God I shall live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe. The freedom from God is true slavery. Slavery to God is true freedom. And if the Son sets us free, then we will be free indeed. Help us to see in our own lives the deceitfulness of sin, the promises that, that never produce the kind of fruit in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our careers, in our health that we want. Father, this is a sobering, hard message, and my prayer is that you would, you would penetrate not only our ears, but our hearts and impact our lives through it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.